All right, if you would, go ahead and open in your Bibles. We're going to be in Proverbs, Proverbs 7 today. Well, have you ever had that feeling when you're watching a movie or maybe reading a good book, and the main character's just about to do something really foolish, and everybody sees it coming, but for some reason they don't see it. They don't see that they're in the room with the person that's wanting to kill them or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there just yelling at your book or the, you know, the TV like, don't you see it? Stop it. Turn around. Go the other way. You know, and what I would argue is probably the best book ever written, Lonesome Dove. We see a very similar situation. You know, this book follows these two retired Texas Rangers And they're going to lead this big cattle drive from South Texas all the way to Montana. And they get this idea to do this from one of their old rangering buddies, Jake Spoon. And now these these three men, they used to be men who would uphold the law. So they, they knew the law well. They knew the difference between right and wrong, or at least they were supposed to. Well, Jake agrees to go on the drive with them at least for a time, but Jake has a bit of a wild spirit. and So after a while, he decides he's going to go into town. He wants to play cards. He's, he's tired of the cowboy life. So he leaves these men who genuinely care about him to go and play cards. Well, he gets mixed up with these bad men when he goes into this town. And these men are known for stealing, killing, I mean, they're, they're evil men. Well, Jake gets involved with them. And so he, he rides off with these guys. And of course, these guys end up killing a few people. And, and Gus and Call, the two ex-Texas Rangers, they find these people. And they decide, hey, we need to take justice into our hands. We need to go find the men who did this. So they do that because they're the best. Of course they find them. But surprisingly to them... Their friend, their ex-rangering buddy, Jake Spoon, is with these evil men. And in that time, the justice system meant they were going to hang these men now that they found them. And so they start tying their hands, and Jake is like, hey, you guys don't need to do this to me. Like, I didn't do anything bad. I didn't, I didn't do anything that these guys did. But Gus, who has, I think, one of the most famous lines in the book... He tells Jake, he says, Jake, you know how it goes. If you ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw. And he says that I'm sorry you crossed the line. Well, Jake, who's just extremely distraught at this point, when he realizes he's about to die, he's telling him, guys, I I never saw the line. I I didn't see it. He had ignored the law for so long. He had ignored what was right for so long that the evil and the right began to get mixed up and that line began to blur to, well, it just wasn't there anymore. And it ended up costing him his life. And can that be true for any of us? Can we ever fill our minds with things that are not God's word, but are maybe things that are popular in the world? And then that line between right and wrong begins to blur. We're going to see something similar today in, in Proverbs 7. Let's remember that, you know, these first nine chapters in Proverbs, 
Solomon's giving his son sound wisdom regarding a whole host of issues. You know, we were in Proverbs 6 a while back, and we saw wisdom regarding financial decisions and warning against laziness, against having crooked speech and being divisive. But on three separate occasions in Proverbs, we have this teaching on the adulterous woman. Well, chapter 7 is the third warning against that. And you see it throughout the rest of Proverbs, but this is the third and final big chunk of teaching on it. So we're just going to be in chapter 7 today, but the second half of chapter 6 is really very similar to chapter 7. You know, chapter 6 is giving kind of general warnings against adultery, whereas chapter 7, it's going to put it into like a drama form or a story. And then I want to give you guys a quick outline. This is how it, how it kind of breaks down. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to have the prologue. And then in 6 through 9, we're going to see the victim in this story. And then in 10 through 12, we meet the forbidden woman. And then in 13 through 21, we're going to see her tactics. And then in 22 through 23, we're going to see the kill. And then in verses 24 through 26, we have the epilogue and the application section. And like I mentioned before, this, the second half of chapter 6 is really very similar to 7. And the general wisdom that we see in 6 is that you are to treasure God's law to such a degree that it goes with you everywhere you go. That his law is what is to lead you and guide you to keep you from sin's temptation. Because if you ignore or forget God's law, and you try or you end up hanging close to sin, then it will hurt you. Verse 27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? And, you know, though the example here that's given is adultery in, in both these chapters, I think it's really wise for us to apply this teaching to really any sin that may be tempting us. So before we read our text, I just want to give my very short sermon in a sentence. Treasure God's word and flee the speech of the forbidden woman. So treasure God's word and flee the speech of the forbidden woman. So with that in mind, let's read Proverbs chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, 
in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linens. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With, such, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, So in verses 1 through 5, again, we have our prologue section. So Solomon is setting this story up for us. And in the first four verses, we see our need to not only get wisdom, but to listen to it, to know it, to love it. He says in verse 1 that the son is to keep his father's words. He's to guard them and treasure them. So first we need to see that For the son to keep these things, to guard these commands, means to some degree he has them. He knows them. So he's not fully naive, but he has some wisdom. So the father then wants his son to stay on the right path. And he is to do this. He is to treasure these commands. He is to internalize them. He is to hide them in his heart and to guard them. You see in the second half of verse 2, he says, keep this teaching as the apple of your eye. So this goes back then to to guarding these commands. If you think about how sensitive your eye is, something so small like just a tiny little dust particle can get into your eye and it can cause such irritation and discomfort. That's why the eye has so much protection around it. You've got an eyelid, eyelashes, eyebrows. You know, all these things are there to protect this thing that is so sensitive and precious to you. 
So this is, how to, this is how we are to be with God's word, with the law of God. As Matthew Henry says, that we should protect God's law from even the most minor violation of it. Well, why is this? Well, because in God's law, it says that there is life. He says, keep my commandments and live. And as we'll see later in the proverb, that if you forsake God's law, if you lack wisdom, then you are led to the slaughter. Well, so then how do we do this? We've seen that we're to internalize God's law, that we're to treasure it and protect it. So we must allow God's law then, if it is in our hearts, to change us, to create in us new ways and new habits. This is why he says and they're to bind these things on their hands and on their fingers. This is the outworking of God's law in our heart. You know, this, this idea is because you, you use your hands for so much, they're out in front of you. So then God's law then should impact and influence how we are living, what we are doing. And then it says, you know, we're to write these on our hearts. The heart is the source of the work of the hands. So if the desire then is for our lives to be lived in a way that honors God, then our hearts must have his law written on them. And we see this language elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? In Deuteronomy 6, Moses instructs the people to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and might. And he says that the words that he has commanded them that day, that they shall be upon their hearts. Later, he tells them to bind them on their hands. He's using this exact language. So their whole lives then, both inside, the heart, outside, binding on their fingers, it must be transformed by the law of God. They are to talk about them when they're awake and when they're going to sleep. They're to teach them diligently to their kids. Write them on their doorposts and gates. All that they do must be in the law. Why? Well, Moses tells them there so that they would not forget God's steadfast love towards them. That though they are sinners and they have rebelled against him, that he has rescued them out of Egypt and that he is bringing them to a land that he promised to give them, to houses that they did not build, to gardens that they did not plant, and cisterns that they did not dig. So there, then to remember as they dwell and treasure the law, God's steadfast love for them. Their heart is to be changed because of this. And as their heart is changed, then their lives would be changed as well, right? So the son then is supposed to treasure these commands, that he is to guard and protect them, that he is to bind them on his fingers, write them on his heart, which we saw both, both the inner and outer man must be changed. Well, then continuing on in the prologue, we have another line of defense we've seen. 
And it's how we're to interact with wisdom. So verse 4, he tells the son to call wisdom his sister. Insight, his intimate friend. To provide just a little bit of context here, sister is really better understood how Solomon is going to use it in Song of Solomon. So in, verses, or in chapter 4 and verse 9 there, he says, You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. In verse 10, How beautiful is your love, my sister and my bride. So really, sister here could be translated as my wife. So there's to be an intimacy that we have with wisdom. We need to be bound to wisdom as though we were married to her. We're to know it intimately as we do our spouse. And as we see here in verse 5, the reason for all of this, the reason for all this defense that Solomon is giving us is to keep us from the forbidden woman, from this adulterous woman with her smooth words. Okay, so we've seen a couple lines of defense, right? We're to treasure God's law. We're to protect God's law from error. We're to treasure it and know it, that when temptation tries to twist it, we can protect its truth. And third, that we're to have an intimate relationship with wisdom. You know, in, chapter, in chapters 8 and 9 of Proverbs, we're introduced to Lady Wisdom. So she's the opposite of the forbidden woman. You know, her words are truth. Her words lead to righteousness. She calls the simple to come and live, while the forbidden woman calls the simple to come and die. So whoever finds Lady Wisdom and listens to her, they find life. But unfortunately, in the story that we're about to read, the simple man ignores Lady Wisdom. So the next 18 verses, we're going to witness one who lacks wisdom, who has ignored his father's teaching. He's not treasured his commands. He's not made wisdom his wife. And this man is vulnerable to temptation. So as Solomon, we see in verse 7, peers out of his window, he sees a young man. We see three things about him here. We see where he's at, his location. We see his age, and we just see he has a lack of understanding. So first, his location. He's among the simple. He's among those who are also lacking wisdom. He's not around those who could potentially warn him of the danger that he's facing. And again, we see that he's young, and he's around young men. And then finally, we see that he's lacking sense. It seems that he's just, he's aimless. He's lacking any heart. You know, at the moment here, there's really nothing wicked about him. But instead, it just seems that he's naive. Really, it seems like he's a young man that just needs to be discipled. But this lacking sense, we're going to see, is going to get him into trouble. Because he's in an area where the, the forbidden woman is at. And he's there at a time of day that is known for immorality. You see in verse 9, it says that it's 
a time of night and darkness. He's there at twilight. This is a time when many think that their sin and immorality can be hidden. Job 25.15 says that the adulterer waits for twilight, but leaving his acts will be unseen by others. So again, it's unclear really if this young man was actually out to find sin, but he is clearly one who seems to be open to it. And it seems like he is walking in the direction of this woman's house. So he's in an area that he shouldn't be in, and at a time of day that is unwise to be there. He is lacking sense. You know, in Proverbs 5, the father warns his son, keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. But this foolish young man is walking the road towards her house. And if this young man seems aimless and has no direction, well, that cannot be said for this woman whose aim is to entice and kill. So we meet her here in verse 10. So she comes out to meet him. And even though she's a married woman, she is dressed like a prostitute or a harlot. You know, on the outside, she keeps nothing back. She tells quite a story on the outside. Oh, but inside, she is guarded. That's what it means when it says that she is wily of heart. Another translation is that she is guarded of heart or even crafty of heart. So all this simple young man can see is this provocative clothing that she's wearing. But he is unable to see the deceptiveness and the evil that is in her heart. And Solomon just paints a pretty menacing picture of her here. She is loud. She has rebellious speech. It's like she's out prowling the streets and markets for her next victim. It says that she lies in wait for one who is simple-minded. But look at her appeal to him. So in verse, in verse 13, she seizes him and she kisses him. Oh, and she makes it appear that he's the only one that she wants. She was out looking just for him. She is appealing to this man's pride and his vanity. And then in verse 14, it says that she offered sacrifices. She had offered peace offerings. So in the Old Testament, when they would offer peace offerings, that meat, that meat then that they offered was to be shared in a meal. And so all she's doing is just looking for someone to eat a meal with. So she's attempting to have this brief appearance of religious worship, give it a nice appearance on the outside. But we see Satan do this, don't we? Even Satan uses Scripture to try to tempt Jesus. So not all the temptation we face is this obvious, blatant, evil thing. Now, sometimes it has the appearance of something that could be good. This is why we must have wisdom. 
Because it doesn't take long here for us to see through this facade. I mean, she's trying to entice a stranger to come to her empty home while her husband is away. But as we see, it's not just dining now that she desires. She didn't really care about sharing this meal with him. She is a wealthy woman of means. She has decorated her home in splendor just for this simple young man. She calls to him to come with her so that they can take their fill of love together, that they can delight in one another. Her husband's gone. He won't be back for a long time. So no one's going to know about it. This can just be our little secret. I mean, all this sounds great for this guy, right? He's not going to get caught. They're going to have a meal. But now we come to the tragic ending of this man's life. Solomon pulls back the curtain even more on this forbidden woman's wicked heart. She uses her seductive and smooth talk to persuade and compel him to come with her. And most of what she said to him really isn't true. She's not eagerly looking and waiting for him. There's nothing special about him other than he's a fool. She is merely a seducer. And look at verse 22. It says, at once he follows her. Immediately. I mean, we read this, and like we do in the books and movies, we're crying out to this guy. What do you, stop. Don't go with her. Don't you see her lies and her deceit? If this simple man is like Jake Spoon, he'd lost sight of the line. He doesn't stop to think and consider He doesn't seek out wise counsel. He immediately follows her. And unknowingly, he is like an ox that is led to the slaughter. He thinks he's going to her house to take his fill of love, but instead he's headed to his destruction. And what's that? You know, the text doesn't say maybe he did go and enjoy himself. Who knows? Maybe the food was great. But the text doesn't say anything about that. But what this wise teacher does perceive is that this forbidden woman's bedroom is transformed from this luxurious house of pleasure into a slaughterhouse. And this simple man is like a dumb beast who has no idea what awaits him. Well, that's going to bring us into the epilogue section, this application section. And the audience here has changed a bit. So in verse 1, he just said, my son, but now he's saying, he's talking to a bigger Christ. And now, oh, sons, listen to me. So he's broadened his scope here. I think he's doing this because temptation is universal. None of us in here are immune to it. We all need to hear this teaching. And he gives us three applications here. The first is that you are to guard your minds. Psalm says, listen to me. Be attentive 
to the words of my mouth. That should already sound familiar to us. That takes us back up to those first five verses. Treasure my commandments and live. You know, in Psalm 119, the psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, the answer is by guarding it according to God's word. So are we filling our minds then with the truth of God's word? Is our defense against sin's temptation found in our own strength to resist something? No, we must combat sin with the promises that are found in Scripture. Solomon tells his son, bind these things on your fingers. Like a, like, I almost touched my Aggie ring. Like a wedding ring <laughs> that we see as a daily reminder of the commitment that we have made to another. Now, we should meditate on God's word. It should be at the forefront of our mind and our thoughts. You know, obviously we do this by studying God's word. We memorize scripture so it's at the forefront of our minds. We know and we sing good hymns. All of these things help us to guard these truths, to treasure them. But that can't be our only hope, is it? can't be just the things that we do, but what has been done for us. Again, Moses told the Israelites to write the law of God on their hearts, but they were unable to do that. And so are we. Oh, we saw over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel forgetting God's law, being enticed by seductive speech away from him. No, we need something outside of us to do this. So listen to the glorious promise. I know we've heard this before here, but in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, out of, <clears throat> when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Oh, friends, this is the beauty of the gospel that we believe. That through the death and resurrection of Christ, a new and better covenant has been established. And this is what Hebrews 8 and 9 is all about. That Christ has secured for us Something even better. He has secured an eternal redemption. And through this redemption, he has given us new hearts. 
Our stubborn hearts of stones were replaced with hearts of flesh. And on these hearts, the Holy Spirit writes on them the glorious promises of God. So it is in the power of the Spirit then that we are to come to God's Word, praying that it would change us, that it would protect us, that it would be a defense against the lies of this forbidden woman. Brothers and sisters, God, by His Spirit, has given us His holy scriptures to be a comfort to us, to be a protection for us against our flesh, the attacks of Satan, and the temptations of the world. And listen, we have the Holy Spirit now who is writing these truths on our heart. We have Christ who is at the right hand right now of the Father, interceding on our behalf, praying for us that we would trust his word and not fall to the temptations of the forbidden woman. So are we trusting this? Are we filling our minds with these truths? You know, if we audit our time, are we spending more time filling our minds with things of this world? Maybe it's books we're reading, podcasts we're listening to, shows we're watching, the people we're hanging out with. Are we filling our minds with the truth of God's word? I mean, God, we live in a day and age where we have access right at our fingertips to the Bible, great books to listen to or read. I listen to them. Music, podcasts. There's good things out there that we can fill our minds with that are true, that are God's word. I mean, it's never been easier for us to reach out to a brother and sister here in Christ and ask for prayer or give encouragement. Listen, these are all things that we can be doing to remind one another to treasure God's word. And listen, you know, if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen, we're, we're so thankful that you're here. But I hope you hear in this that there is nothing that you can do outside of Christ to earn God's love for you. There's nothing you can do that it is only by the death and the perfect blood of his son that can grant you forgiveness. That is it. You have no righteousness apart from Christ. It is only by the righteousness given you in Christ that you can have forgiveness. Again, just like we saw in Jeremiah, we had hearts of stone. And friend, if you have not trusted in Christ, your heart is still stone. And it cannot have these laws of God written on them. They must be changed to a heart of flesh. And the only way to do that is to confess Jesus is Lord, to believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So listen, if you have never believed that, if you've never heard that, come and talk to me. Find somebody that brought you here. Talk to them. We'd love to talk to you about it. But don't don't leave here wondering if these things are true of you. Please come and talk to one of us. Well, now we see our second 
application. And it's to stay away from her. Don't go near her path. This takes us back again to verses six through nine. So this simple young man is wandering close to her house at a time when darkness is approaching. I know my mom used to always say to me, nothing good happens after dark, and that's true. I mean, how often does sin start out so small with just a few what seem like minor concessions? Now, you know, I'm going to watch this show. I know that there's some bad stuff in it, but I'll just skip it. I don't really need accountability software. I think I can, I can manage that on my own. It, it won't be a big deal. I mean, the simple-minded guy here, he just wants to go for a walk, right? Yeah, maybe it's a little late, and yeah, I'm not really walking in a great area, but, you know, I think I can avoid the temptation. I think I'm good. So what are you willing to give up to defeat sin? You know, are you willing to maybe go the long way home to avoid explicit billboards? Are you willing to stop reading books because they cause you to fantasize about a life that you don't have? Are you willing to end a, maybe an unhealthy relationship at work with someone of the opposite sex? I mean, what are the things that we cling just so tightly to because they make you feel good and you think that you have these things under control? I mean, how many men and women do we know that have ruin their lives thinking that they had a situation under control. I mean, consider Samson. You know, he's this really strong, wise man, right? I mean, no way this foreign woman's going to bring me down. He's got it under control, right? No, he was a fool. Friends, this is telling us don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray into her paths. Avoid them. Flee from them. Get away from them. And then our third application is look at her destruction. You know, the first two applications, they call us to action, but really this third one calls us just to observe. And I've already said this, but nobody is immune to temptation in here. So from the moment Adam and Eve gave into temptation in the garden, no man or woman has ever gone without being tempted. You know, we have, again, countless examples in Scripture of this, don't we? I mean, we just mentioned Samson. We see David, you know, again, kind of like this fool. He's in a place that he shouldn't be. He should be at war with his men, yet he's standing on his roof gazing out, and he sees a married woman showering. This lady's not his wife. And he is tempted, and he is seduced by this temptation. I mean, this was a man after God's own heart. Oh, yet he was tempted, and he believed the lies of the forbidden woman. So we are meant to see these things. We are meant to see the destructiveness of this Woman and this sin, those who have wandered from the path of righteousness, and it is to be a warning for us. And unfortunately, this is 
Not uncommon today, is it, in the church? I mean, we see this all too often today. You know, several months ago when I was preaching Proverbs 5, we talked about the Ashley Madison website. You know, life is short, have an affair. And there were a number of pastors and ministry leaders on that website who lost their platforms, lost their jobs. Friends, this is, this is not outside of the church, unfortunately. No, no one in here in their own strength and in their own wisdom is able to stand against her. And listen, this is, this, we're going to do this in closing. I, I want us to just consider for a second Ephesians 6. Because I don't want you to leave here thinking that you just need to go and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do better. Because that's, that's not what this text is saying. That's not, Lord willing, what I'm saying. So in the second half of Ephesians 6, Paul tells us how we're to fight sin and temptation. This is the passage on the armor of God. I'm sure some of us have heard this taught really well and probably others not so well. But what I want to argue here is that Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, it really has very little to do with us and everything to do with our union in Christ. You know, Paul tells us here to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So it's not our might, but it's his might. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Again, this isn't our armor. This is armor from God. This is his armor that we are to wear so that we might be able to stand against the schemes and temptations of the devil. So first he tells us then to put on the belt of truth. And this truth then is the gospel which we all stand in. It's what holds all of this together. It's, it's one of the most important pieces there are. So then our union with Christ is this truth that we must rest in. And next he mentions the, the breastplate of righteousness. Well, whose righteousness are we to wear? Ours? Are we to put on our own righteousness? No, it's not ours. We're to wear the righteousness of Christ. So we stand as those who are fully and completely forgiven. And then next it says that we're to put on our feet the gospel of peace. This is our reconciliation to a most holy God. Through Christ, we are now at peace with God. Therefore, as we go out, we are to be at peace with others. And then we take up the shield of faith. And Paul seems to emphasize this above others. He says, above all or in every circumstance, take up the shield of faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith is receiving from Christ his benefits and his redemption. Oh, these promises, they defend against the attacks of Satan. And then next we're to put on the helmet of salvation. So the hope that we have in Christ 
is what secures our head. Satan would tempt us to despair. Oh, but our hope is not in us, but is in the salvation that we have in Christ. Then we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is our only offensive weapon here against Satan's attacks. And it's not our word that defeats him. No, this is God's word that we say back to him. So brothers and sisters, our great and only defense against the forbidden woman and her attacks, it is our union with Christ in the gospel. We must rest in that truth if we are to stand strong in the Lord. Our hope cannot be in ourselves and our ability to fight temptation. No, it's in the power of God which he has given us through his son by his spirit. So when Proverbs says to keep my commandments and live, that we should rejoice because the one whom we find our righteousness in did just that. Oh, he is who we rest in. He is our defense against temptation and sin. And when we fall, he is the one who stands at the right hand of the Father and advocates on our behalf. Because we know that we fall. Oh, but we can have great confidence that those who are in Christ will never be broken or cast aside. Also, brothers and sisters, treasure these promises. Treasure your union with Christ. Dwell on these things. Remind one another of these things. Because it is in these promises, in these truths, that we are able to defend against the lies and the seduction of sin. This is how, friends, that we put on God's armor, is that we treasure our union with Christ. Let's pray.